The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Scholars believe that Jeremiah was only 18 years old when he walked three miles from his hometown into the heart of Jerusalem and dared say to the king and to the high priest that they must lead the people in serious reform. They must lead their people to return to the Lord their God. It worked for a time. Josiah was king. When the priest produced a new scroll of Deuteronomy that he was told was the work of Moses, he led meaningful reform. Judah was on the right trail. A hundred years after the ten northern tribes had been destroyed by the Assyrians, and then those dreaded Egyptians came again, racing their chariots along the river, the sea road, the Via Mari, the Romans would later call it, the road right along the Mediterranean Sea. Josiah took his armies out to meet them at Megiddo, and he was killed. The next kings were worse than before. And when Jeremiah was 58 years old, he stood as the Babylonians surrounded the city of Jerusalem, laid siege to it, and would eventually burn it to the ground. Scholars say Jeremiah was hard-pressed to find anything positive to say in what was going on. And yet here we have something very positive from Jeremiah. Let's take a look. Behold, it says, Surely the day is coming when I, the Lord your God, will make a new covenant. I think Jeremiah meant his own people for sure. He meant the people of Judah, that whatever lay immediately before them at the hands of these dreaded Babylonians, God would resurrect from those who were left a new Judah. But is there any wonder that the gospel writers searching frantically in the Hebrew Scriptures for some word about who Jesus really was to them would come to a passage like this and find hope and meaning. For us Gentiles, a new covenant with Almighty God. Many of you will remember when Dr. William Willimon came to be our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter. He was dean of the chapel at Duke University and Duke Divinity School. He has since been elected a bishop and serves as bishop in the state of Alabama, headquartered in Birmingham. He has a new book out now called Why Jesus. He was interviewed by one of the reporters with the United Methodist Reporter and asked about his new book, Why Jesus? The reporter asked, and the bishop said, Don't you find it strange that we still hold to the belief that a Jew who came from a little nowhere place like Nazareth, so remote it is not mentioned in one of the 39 scrolls of the Hebrew Scriptures, who lived so briefly, died so violently, rose so unexpectedly, we should still hold is the clearest picture of God we have ever received. 
What have you received, he was asked. Ah, he said, you're asking questions like my students back at Duke. They wanted all the answers before they would make any commitment whatsoever. Who do you think he really was, they would ask. Nobody really did that, did they, Dr. Williman? Now, surely, Dr. William Williman, a man as smart as you knows, nobody can really do that. And I would say to them, you're asking your questions instead of answering the one question he had of all of you and of me. Will you follow me? But I don't know enough about you. Will you follow me? Simon? Andrew? James? John? Will you come with me? Put down your nets and come with me? I encourage the students at Duke, he said, to get up and follow Jesus. If you will follow him, he will give you light enough for a little more understanding and a little more understanding and a little more understanding. Number two, the new day for anyone comes when he or she wants to turn to the Lord, return to the one who created you, the word in Hebrew for repent, I've told you many times, sub has to do with turning or returning. In this new day, this new relationship with God, somebody's going to have to turn and follow the one true God. And when we turn, he will forgive us, blot out, erase, remember no more our iniquities. You ever read those articles in newspapers and magazines that ask someone who's getting along in years now, what are the five best books you ever read? What are the five greatest movies you ever saw? One of the contributors to the Wall Street Journal was asked recently about his five favorite movies. David Mermelstein wrote about a movie that came out when Gail and I were in high school called Paths of Glory. Kirk Douglas was in it was based on a book, 1935, about World War I. Gail and I have been to the battlefields at Flanders. We spent a whole Sunday down there one day, that place where the poppies grow between the crosses, row on row, where the British forces and the German forces lined up against each other and fought in those same trenches for four long years more than 600,000 died in one huge field in Flanders. Well, this book was about a corrupt general in the French army who commanded his troops one day to take an impregnable fortress at the top of the hill. And when they were not successful, he kept sending more and more and more, all of them being killed. And when higher-ups discovered what had happened... They wanted answers, and the general's answer was, my men were cowards. And three of them were court-martialed. The movie left little doubt that they were going to be found guilty with this general's testimony and that they would be taken out and shot by firing squad, and that's what happened. 
The soldiers who were there knew the truth of the whole thing. It was the general's mistake. It was a bad decision from the beginning that the men had fought valiantly. Those who survived sought out the nearest bar they could find in the outskirts of Germany. They were rowdy. They were cursing. They were mad at the world. And they saw a little German girl there whose parents owned the bar. And they told her, get up and entertain us. And one of them literally pushed her up onto the stage. She was just a child. She was frightened to death of these French soldiers. But another one screamed out, sing! And she sang a song she'd been taught as a child. And the room got quiet. And she sang another song she'd been taught as a child. And the room got quieter. David Mermelstein said, You see, this movie was made by Stanley Kubrick. And in his movies, he often showed how desperate the human situation can be. But he always showed a possibility for redemption. There be may be no hope for the general, but there is hope for these young soldiers that they can go back to an earlier time. They can be genuinely caring human beings again. Number three. It says here, I will write my law in their hearts. They won't need a scroll. They'll have it in their hearts. It really is the word Torah in the text. And so in the Tanakh, the newest translation done by rabbis here in the United States, I read their translation anytime I'm preaching from the Hebrew Scriptures, and they use the word that Torah really means. I will put my teachings... I will put my instructions in their hearts. You know that every Sunday when I preach to you, I've chosen one of four appropriate lections for the day. The lectionary is so designed that there's an appropriate reading from the Hebrew Scriptures. That's what I'm using most of this year. There's also a Psalter reading. and Dr. Pensera picks that for us. And then there's a reading from one of the Gospels. The Reverend Eva Marie Campbell read that appropriate one for us. And then there's a reading from the Epistle. I'm always choosing one out of four. It doesn't mean the others are unimportant, of course. Did you listen carefully to what Eva Marie was reading to you? Did you follow along with your own eyes from the Bible in your pew? This is a very important story. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke... Say, Jesus was crucified because he turned those tables upside down in the temple that first day, his arrival in Jerusalem. That's what really upset those who were in charge at the temple, and they plotted against his life. John will have no part of that. John says Jesus was in Jerusalem on three different Passover occasions, and it was the first one where he turned over the money table, changers' tables. But the thing that put him on the cross was his raising Lazarus from the dead. That's what John said. It was that time when Jesus received word that Lazarus was very sick and about to die. He got in no particular hurry getting down to Bethany. It's only three miles from the old walled city of Jerusalem, just over the top of Mount, the Mount of Olives. 
No particular hurry. Lots of people were reaching out their hands to touch him, to speak to him. And when he got there, one of the sisters ran out and said, if you'd only been here, our brother would not have died. Do you believe he will live again? She thinks he means, oh, the old understanding that death sort of hovers around for three days. No, no, he's not just in a coma. He's been dead four days. His body's already started to smell. I understand, Jesus said. Do you believe he will live again? And she said, oh, you mean am I a Sadducee who does not believe he will or a Pharisee who does believe he will? I'm a Pharisee. I believe he will at the final resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Do you believe this? That was a little much for her. But she gave the right answer. I believe you are the Messiah of God. I believe you are the Messiah of God. Jesus walked out to the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. And the very next chapter is the one Eva Marie read to you. They're having dinner at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Martha scurrying around, fixing all kinds of fancy things. Jesus has come to eat with them. Mary isn't helping. Mary's lying right close to Jesus as they recline at table, waiting for the meal to come. She takes out expensive nard. The synoptics don't tell us it's Mary, sister of Lazarus. They almost didn't lead you to believe this is a woman off the streets, uh, prostitute, a streetwalker of some sort. John says, no, it was Mary, this Mary. The others say expensive. John says, 300 denarii. That's a year's wages for an ordinary person. A year's wages. She pours it onto the head of Jesus. Martha complains into the synoptics, make Mary help me. No, I'm not going to do that, Martha. Mary's chosen the better portion, and I'm not taking that away from her. And Lazarus, who had been raised reclined at table with them. Dr. Caroline Lewis, a professor at a Lutheran seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, has said, we forget at Easter time that he also said, I am the life. I am the resurrection. I am the life. And life doesn't get much better than this to have meal with people whom you love and know that Jesus is at the table. The next chapter in John's Gospel says, if you abide with me, I will abide with you. My teachings, my instructions own your very heart. I will not abandon you. I will be with you. You can count on that. Number four. I will be their God. They will be my people. Did you watch a basketball game last Monday night? Just before the 8.30 service, I was walking in with one of our members. I said, you watch the basketball game Monday night? He said, I watched half of it. Then I went to bed. Most boring game I've ever seen, he said. It was boring, particularly if you're rooting for Butler. I didn't know much about Butler. I looked it up on the Internet a few days before the game. 
Indianapolis, Indiana. It's a small private school. Has just a few hundred students more than University of Tulsa. And here it had made it to the finals two years in a row. The coaches understand how unlikely that that happens to anybody. Even the big basketball powers, the ones who are always in the top ten, rarely get there all the way to the final. Because not only do you have to have a great season, then you have to put six games together back to back. I mean, it looked like Duke could not be beaten, and then they came to a game they couldn't hit the backboard. It looked like Kansas could not be beaten, and then they got to a game they couldn't hit the backboard. Ohio State had a similar experience, and then it came Butler's turn in the finals. At one point, they threw up 13 straight shots, missed them all. Their two biggest scorers shot 18%. It was disastrous. Most of the reporters went to the University of Connecticut locker room to celebrate with the winners. One reporter went to the Butler dressing room. And it was exactly what he anticipated. These huge kids sitting on the benches with their faces in their hands, sobbing their hearts out. Last game they would ever play together. Last time they would be in the finals. Last time for these kids. And then he said, I saw something happen. One of the players named Ronald Norred walked over to one of these two whom the team had counted on so much, tapped him on the shoulder, and stuck out his hand. And the other kid grabbed onto it, and he pulled him to his feet and then threw his arms around him and squeezed him to his own chest. And he said, at first, it just made that one cry harder. So he squeezed harder and harder until one could feel the heartbeat of the other. You know what the word compassion means? A lot of people think compassion means empathy. You feel what somebody else is feeling, but empathy can also mean birthday celebration. One's happy, everybody's happy. Well, compassion's a different word. Those of you who took Latin like I did know what this word means. Compate. Compate, cum means with. P-A-T-I, pate, means suffering. It means suffering. It means pain and hurt. Compassion is suffering with another. And that first one started to dry his eyes. Not Ronald turned and went to the second. Did the same thing. Tapped him on the shoulder. When he lifted his head for a moment, stuck out his hand. Without a word, pulled him to his feet. Threw his arms around him and squeezed him. He cried harder at first that somebody cared enough. But as he squeezed him harder and harder till one could feel the heartbeat of the other, he quit crying. Can you see the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ coming to you?